Thank you for joining us today. My name is Maccabee Griffin. And I'm Marcella. And this is Beyond the Pen, where we take the well-known adage, read between the lines to a whole new level and beyond. Each week we sit down with a new author to not only discuss one of their books, but also learn the story behind the story. All right, Marcella, seriously, I am like really excited about our next guest just because, again, he is one, an anthropologist. So that's mm-hmm. kind of cool in itself. And two, he and another anthropologist by the name of Kyra West, uh, Wellstrom it mm-hmm. has created this like guide to world building. And if anybody that knows me listens, that listens right now, I am a huge world builder. I love doing it. I love doing it for character voices. It makes it a lot easier for me just to go into an audition and say, oh, hey, I've already got a personality. And <laughs> it'll work perfectly for it. Um, but yeah, I love, I love I, doing you this. You would like this guy. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> That's why I was like very excited. I was like, okay, yeah. Cool. Got him. Then I saw the book. I was like, oh, this is going to be so good. You know, yeah, I, I skimmed through the book uh, several times, actually, in the past few months. So um, probably I, I, the first time I encountered it was probably sometime in um, I'm trying to remember when I when Jennifer and I had dinner because I, I met Jennifer in person. And it was soon after that I encountered this book and I've been going through it. And, um, you know, just like very briefly, I have, you know, my kid is it because of her autism she's very into uh-huh. minecraft and it gets so deep and i saw this and i said i need for her to take a look at this book so yes yeah absolutely you know and for for all those that are really excited about what we're saying uh just so you know it is called build better worlds an introduction to anthropology for game designers fiction writers and filmmakers. Now, here's the thing with that title. I really, really wish I could add three more people, three more titles to that too, because of the fact <laughs> it's not adding just creatives in general, not adding on uh, actors, because we do this literally all the time because mm-hmm. we have to. And just because of the fact, uh, game masters, dungeon masters, yep. you know, whatever RPG, t- uh, tabletop RPG you're talking about. These are things that yeah. we literally yeah, do. Yeah. Exactly. Well, of course. It, I'll show you later exactly what she's talking about in terms of this. Um, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get past this. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce to you the man, the myth, the legend, the seer <laughs> of worlds himself. Mr. Michael Kilman. Michael, thank you for being on the show. We appreciate it so much. No problem. But thanks for having me on. So glad you're here today. Thanks. Glad yeah. to be here. Oh, yes. So obviously we're going to just go straight into it. You know, please, can you just introduce yourself just a little bit? And just obviously, here's another thing I would like you to do while you're introducing you to, to our listeners. Tell us something that they can't find on the internet about you. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. Um, there's not a lot that you can't find about me on the internet at this point. Uh, you know, um, oh, let's see. Well, uh, um, you know, I actually, I, well, here's one. I actually started out college as a music performance major. So uh, I started out with guitar. My, I got a big old 
tattoo here of a, a burning guitar that is like the most probably obnoxious and nerdy tattoo of all time. So, so. Oh, no, no, no. There's probably a lot more. I can tell you of a few of them. I know. All, need, all that needs to be completed here is that it was a tramp stamp instead of a, on my shoulder. So, <laughs> but You're just um, giving me bad ideas, Michael. Yeah. So, so uh, but yeah, no, I started out, um, you know, I've always been interested in creative stuff. And uh, I did my first attempt at a book when I was 15. Bad, very bad. So uh, not very good world building. But of course, you know, I was sitting there reading Terry Brooks and uh, Michael Crichton and, uh, you know, of course, uh, The Hobbit and, you know, all those mm-hmm. kind of classic things. But I was super obsessed with science fiction and Star Trek at that point in my life. And uh, but I thought, oh, I could write a fantasy story where I'm the main character. You know, <laughs> it didn't mm-hmm. go well. But, you know, uh, I always like to joke with people that, uh, you know, if you're going to be a writer, you have to have a really bad, a million at least bad words that you've written before you write anything really decent. So, so. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what was there was a, a rich, a, a rich man. I can't remember who's the richest man in, in the U.S. right now. I can't remember his name in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I can't remember the gentleman's name by the life of me, but one of the things he said was that he will not invest into an entrepreneur unless they have actually uh, failed as being a businessman at least two times. That sounds like Buffett, something Buffett would say. Warren Buffett. That's who it was. Warren Buffett. Yeah. So, all right. Now, for anybody who knows me, again, when it comes to world building, I could literally be talking about this for days upon days. I get so infected. Stop this is why I really hate sometimes having Marcella as a, as a host too, because of the fact that she just, she treats me like a little kid. Uh, <laughs> she does. She actually does. No. Uh, but no, for those people who really know me well, I, I can spend hours upon hours talking about world building. I was telling Michael earlier, like I was, I couldn't even get past the first paragraph without going on a three-hour tangent to myself about all the things that he's actually saying on this. And it was really cool. And But here's one of the things I really thought was interesting is about how you guys took this guide, basically, and created an idea with the core of it being anthropology. And... Like you said earlier, obviously, uh, Michael, you're an anthropologist and your co-writer, uh, Kyra uh, Wellstrom, is also an anthropologist, correct? Yeah, Kira is a uh, forensic anthropologist and I am a cultural anthropologist. So for those of you who probably don't know anything about anthropology because most people think that we dig up dinosaur bones, we actually study people. So our whole entire thing is studying people from different directions. So uh, Kira is a biological anthropologist. So she looks at how biology and culture interact, but she specializes in uh, forensic science. So, you know, of course, you've seen that show Bones, which Kira hates it when I reference that because Bones is so... I, I was going to keep that. I, was gonna, I wasn't going to do that, but I wanted to. I had that joke earlier. I was like, I'm... Yeah. She actually has a published academic article on why Bones is bad. So, so <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Uh, I have to read it, article, mind you. So, so I have you know, to read it. I have to. She gives a lot. She gives a lot of, uh, of of time and space to to why. No, you know, uh, the same token. At least people are starting to know what anthropology is because they see the show Bones, right? But um, we study people, so 
I mean, what better group of individuals to talk about world building than people who spend their lives studying people? So, uh, so, so I approach it from a culture, uh, a cultural side, because there's four subfields of four subfields of anthropology. There's archaeology, biological anthropology, cultural anthropology, and linguistic anthropology. So those are the four main fields, and of course, each of those have hundreds of little subfields. You know, everything from garbageology, the study of of historical garbage and archaeology, which is a whole a whole subfield, to um, uh, you know uh, globalization to um, you know, uh, 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 studying climate change, actually, because some of the first adopters of an anthropology of climate change were archaeologists because they spent all this time studying the ice cores and what does the atmosphere look like for ancient humans. So we, we study if there is a subject, anthropologists study it. So, I mean, there's algorithmic anthropologists who study the, the cultural impact of algorithms. My particular area of specialty in anthropology mostly centers on media and representation. How does media create the way that we think about the world? And so, you know, uh, so, of course, world building, uh, you know, what we imagine matters. How we yeah. think about the world matters because, you know, and, and in fact, diversity is the greatest tool humans have. Because if you're trying to approach the same problem from the same direction every time, you might not realize you could go around the other way and, and take a look at the problem in a different direction. And so, you know, if you look at the, 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 the golden ages of humanity, all of them have one thing in common, diversity. Diversity mm -hmm. was accepted and welcomed. Now, that doesn't mean the society was perfect, that there wasn't bias and discrimination, but at least we were open to new ideas. And so, you know, if you look at the height of the Greek the Greeks, the height of the Romans, the height of the uh, the height of the Islamic Empire, the height of the Mongols, the height of the British, uh, everything throughout all the height of the great empires, they all had that one thing in common. It was the welcoming of diverse perspectives and viewpoints. And so, um, and so, when we when we look at anthropology, and a lot of what this book is trying to do is saying, "Hey, look, okay, here's how we understand politics, but then also here's diverse approaches to politics, uh, and here's different ways people do it." Or, you know, we think of economics, we think of capitalism, we think of communism, we think of socialism, yeah. but that's actually one flavor of economics, like the market economy. That that's that's just the tip of the iceberg for economics because. Economics is ultimately about energy management. So, uh, so, or if you take, um, you know, biology, uh, you know, uh, what culture is to begin with is an adaptation to both the physical environment, so the climate or, or the, you know, what what resources are available, in addition to the social environment. So our cultures are always changing and moving and growing because we're always adapting to the changing conditions on the ground. So, and that's the fundamental crux of every story change because who cares what you know amazing world you're in what we're interested in is how do you mess it up that's what oh, we're yeah. interested in right oh, you yeah. at what is the, what are the most famous stories what's happening right star wars the empire is under attack from the resistance and they're trying to change the status quo right the rebels in fact if little funny story uh isis used to use star wars as a recruitment film if you didn't know so 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 it just tells you a lot about the complexities of interpreting stories and cultures so you know Man, um, you I know we're the evil empire in their story so uh uh, so, but you see this Harry Potter. What's happening? The magical world is un, under attack by a, a mm -hmm. continuing rise of an authoritarian dictator. Right. So yep. it's, 
we're, we're not interested in the cultural world building. We're, we're most interested in the change and what tools that people use uh, in order to manage the change or, or how or what weird, wacky things. Um, a really great example of this is uh, Joe Abercrombie's latest, latest trilogy, which was just very excellent because he took a fantasy world from his first trilogy uh, and uh, the first law trilogy is the first trilogy. I forget the name of maybe the age of madness, I think is the second trilogy. Um, but it's the, this fantasy world with minimalistic magic because magic is really costly, really expensive and really yeah. rare in his, yeah, in absolutely. his world. It's there, but you really don't want to mess with it. it, it it's, it's kind of a really dangerous and deadly thing. And the, those who do, who can wield it, essentially control all the politics, right? Right, his, yeah. His, his newer one uh, was about an industrial revolution and workers' rights and all this other stuff. And it just, it really talks about how complex all this stuff is. You just, all of a sudden, these massive social and culture changes. And, and so that's really what we were trying to do with the book is, is really create a guide to understanding why humans behave the way they do. And if you're going to build a fictional world, understanding the different actual science behind this stuff might be a useful way to approach it. Because there are a lot of world building books out of there. And, and this is not to say that there aren't plenty of good ones. But our approach is, what's the science? What is the science that, what do we know for a fact actually happens in some circumstances and which things are hard to pin, pin down? So that's that's a lot of what we tried to do with the book. You just answered three of my questions. You go, Matt. He, he answered about three of my questions too. So well, great, uh, then there's three more for each question, right? That's nine <laughs> questions. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Trust me. We got definitely a plenty of questions for you. Let me tell you. I, I could literally write like a whole... I, I, probably about three or four different shows on just this alone. Um, well, I was going to ask you what was so important about, uh, you know, anthropology and, and world building, but you literally just blew that out the well. Um, no, but it was something that you did say that really caught my, 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 uh, my mind to go on another tangent for another three and a half hours. Uh, it was um, about being an architect. You know, because like you said, there's there's a tons of different writing styles. We since the day that we started writing to now, there's like 15, 20 different ones. Um, but what it was that you really said was like you are the archetype architect, excuse me, you are the architect of your world. And obviously that can mean so many things to a lot of people, but obviously in this case, you know, for me, I'm an architect architectural writer i have to literally line everything up specifically to make it work properly because if i find just one little thing wrong then i know readers and marcella definitely being one of them will <laughs> call me out on it and it is one of those things that a lot of you don't see that in a lot of variations to uh, people's writing anymore there's a lot more of, you know, here's the spotlight. This is what I want you to see. Go with it. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about anything else that means anything to the story. But my question to you was, you know, because you also made another statement under it. was um, understanding the, host the holistic nature of culture and knowing how these events outside, uh, outside forces happen in the real world 
will not only give you your world greater depth and quality, but make you make your life a lot easier as well. Now, I, the reason why I brought that up is because when it comes to writing, there, like I said, there was a lot of people that just, here's the story, here's the topic that I want to go with. And then there are those who are like me and just have to get everything lined up perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pantsers versus plotters, right? Thank Funny you. enough, yes. I'm a pantser, not a plotter. <laughs> oh, I'm definitely I'm definitely a plotter. Um, <laughs> but here's my question to you. Do, with, with that statement that I just read from your book, do you think it is easier for Panthers to write a narrative that's still going to be uh, diverse enough for people to get connected to than a plotter like myself doing it? Well, these are, are different kinds of approaches. Um, I, I mean, my pre- my process is just utter utter chaos. So there was the other day I was working on three chapters literally at the same time. I had screen, I had my dual screens open, and I have different boxes open with Scrivener and uh, you know and all this other stuff. So I'm working on three different things at the same time, and um, you know, for me that makes sense because that's how my brain works. I'm mm-hmm. not a person who plans. And I mean, this is a generalization. Anthropologists really can't be the kind of meticulous planner because you go into a culture and a community and you got all your preconceptions of what you think is going on. And, you know, if you try to if you try to do anything, if you try to plan anything, Uh you just get the rug pulled out from under you immediately. Right. And so it's a little bit about uh, just about being present with what you're doing. If you're a pantser, you've got to. you you've got to and also with a pantser too a lot of my world building stuff if i have an issue with it comes in the second draft right so a lot of the times mm-hmm. the first draft is i'm just trying to to figure out what is happening in this world because for, for me it's like it's almost like doing anthropology i'm going in i'm investigating what these characters are doing what is this cultural system i don't understand it yet uh you know and it really takes until about 60 or 70 percent of the book is finished until i actually really fully understand the big picture i need all the pieces of the puzzle so uh, and then a, a lot of times when I get to about that level, I may that's when I may start think, well, if they're doing this politically, that doesn't make any sense. Something else needs to happen here. Uh-huh. And so then, then the anthropologist brain starts starts coming in. So I, I don't think there's necessarily a, a better approach for world building with plants and panther versus plotter. They're just stylistically different. And, and they're just kind of an example of how different brains function differently. Um, but certainly... You know, the, the goal of the book, the holism, is the most important part of, of, of world building. Your culture and the identities within your culture must make sense. Now, of course, you know, there's plenty of people who live in a state of cognitive dissonance, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. you know, I, I when I was an undergrad, I was in an evolution class with a woman who uh, she wanted to be an evolutionary biologist, but she also was a creationist. And she viewed human evolution as a way to prove her creationism. But that's not how it works. And yet somehow in her brain, somehow in her brain, she made it work. So people are also full of contradictions. So what's really important is that your characters are living within the culture, right? There's only so many available options within any given culture. And I know Americans really like to think that we have like infinite choice 
But there's so many things we don't even know about. How can right. you make choice about something you don't know about? I mean, there's there's so much sincere ignorance, right? There's a difference between sincere ignorance where you just don't know something or you've never been taught it versus willful ignorance where the evidence is smacking you in the face and you just choose to ignore it anyway because it's inconvenient for your way of thinking about the world, right? So so you have to think about your characters that way. And this is why, you know, in uh, the, uh, the chapter on context, conditions, and choices, which is our model, we mm-hmm. created this model to, to help people, like if nothing else, consider this model, right? You have a cultural context, which is that's the cultural system into which someone's born, right? Right. Right. And so there's all, every available option of the culture is the context. And that includes your language, your history, um, the, the way that you mythologize your political system, because we do that. We, the founding fathers are mythological creatures. You don't, you know, they, we, we reference them every day and we, we think about them in terms of what would they do? What would the founding fathers do? What did they intend? How did the, what's the constitution? It's, it's very similar to what would Jesus do? It's, it's actually really no different. And right, so absolutely. we're constantly looking at our past as a kind of mythology. History and mythology are, are very, very much linked. There, there are some differences for sure, but there's a lot of overlapping elements here. And so we're always looking for that, that greater context to understand the new things that come to our culture, right? So, so you have to start out with the context. What is the cultural system into which they are born? Is it like, you know, uh, is there industrial revolution going on at the end of an age of magic? Like we were just talking about, uh, do you live on a generation ship that's, you know, traveling the galaxy at sublight speeds. And so you have to have hundreds of generations to arrive at next star- starship. Uh, you know, is it, uh, is there a wizard school? I mean, uh, what, what, what's going on? What cultural system is present? What kind of things would they necessarily need to adapt Right. Because yeah. if you're living on a generation ship, that's different than living in a, a, a hidden sacred grove in the forest as an elf. Right. You're going to have a different kind of uh, resources you need to deal with, uh, you know, different kinds of language that you'll have to describe those resources. So what is that big cultural system? Right. That's the context. The next is the conditions, because people are unequal in society. They always have been. They always will be to some extent. Now, we can, of course, you can make the inequality less and in great golden ages of humanity, there's less inequality. There's, there's more uh, equity uh, and all that stuff. Um, But there's, there's always some people who are disenfranchised by any given system. And if you change a system, then that also disenfranchises. So what is the conditions of the individual character within the given system? So what is their experience? Did they grow up super rich? Did they grow up super religious? Uh, I mean, maybe they grew up super rich and religious, right? And so, And so, you know, in my own classes, when we actually, because there's also a textbook version of this book, and we use it uh, in my uh, my general diversity courses, um, they their second assignment is they have to build a privileged system. So they they look at the cultural context, and then they have to uh, and then they have to take their characters within that system and decide, okay, well, what elements of their identity are advantageous or privileged to them and in, in what ways are they oppressed so let's say you know they're they're white but they're also a minority religion and a minority sexuality but also they have a lot of wealth and so their their identity is going to be you know this really exactly right and it's so really all over the place it's all over the place but people are like that right yeah, that's, that's yeah. what real people are like so you, you you're a you you have different conditions of your life and of course your experiences change those conditions and then the, the last one is is choice right so if you understand the cultural system 
and then you understand the conditions of someone's life, then maybe, perhaps maybe, you can understand why they made a choice. It doesn't yeah. always make sense because a lot of times stuff is up in here, right? And, yeah. and a lot of times we don't even understand why we make a choice. But but at least if you have a, a, you know, a cultural system in place, a, a character's life conditions, then, then you can begin to, to try to really understand them. And so you know, you don't need to be a plotter to, to have those three things necessarily. You just uh -huh. have to have at least in the beginning a vague idea of what this cultural system looks like. And then yes, as you're yes. editing and as you're writing and you're building chapters, you and this is what I do is I, I just continue to update and refine and what's going on. And, you know, and by the time my things go to the my fiction, my science fiction specifically goes to the editor. It's already been through five or six significant drafts. And then it goes to the editor and then I do one additional like spot check draft to just make sure everything makes sense. And if I have to, I'll send it back to the editor again. But um, uh, but but so you don't have to be so meticulous about world building. But for some people, that's the way forward, too. Right. You, you, yeah. But for some. Yeah, exactly. So for some people and, and also if you're working in a gaming sphere. You, you can't you can't do the you might be able to get away with some of the lore being kind of off the cuff. But depending on what sphere or a film, you know, yeah. writers have a lot more freedom than these other disciplines or tabletop. Right. Because you still have mm -hmm. to if you're doing a tabletop world, if you're building a and d campaign, you have to already understand what's going on before you can put the character. So, so there's different places there you go, right? <laughs> yeah, there's different places uh, that it's appropriate to, to be more meticulous and not. And, and but you know, is but but generally speaking, if you're writing a book, your process is your process. Do it work. Yeah. So and, and I think also too, I'm a big believer that the things that we learn and experience, you know, we we kind of store them somewhere back here, right? So if you read a book on world building, those things will occur to you even if you don't realize it as you as you're doing. And so a lot of what we just we were kind of hoping is that even if people don't just sit down and kind of meticulously go through chapter and chapter and, and at the end of each chapter, there's little bullet point suggestions for at least, you know, OK, at least think about these things. Right. If you didn't yeah, go yeah. through the whole chapter, if it was a little too dry for you or or perhaps there's a section that just seemed too dense, at least consider these things at the end, these bullet points. Right. And so we hope we kind of hope that at least. Um, they would keep those bullet points in mind as they're writing, and, and maybe it would help them to open up new ways of thinking about their own fictional worlds. And, and when you understand cultural systems, it also helps you to, um, to, to create some interesting and different and unique stuff, because there's so much stuff out there about writing to market and trying to predict your audience. And I, right. I, 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 there's me, so much. It's like, Fine. If your your goal is just to make money off books, okay, I understand that approach. You're doing a very business model. You're doing marketing. But I really, my interest personally for writing, and there's nothing wrong with that approach, but I think personally, I want something that's going to make people think a little differently about something. It's good. There's something yeah. in my story is going to hit them and it, and they're going to be like, oh man, I never thought about that before. And, and hopefully do something positive for their life. Um, and not that you can't do that with a, a standardized right to market text, but there's so much generic stuff out there these days, you know, and, and you look at Hollywood. I mean, there's lots and lots of generic stuff and taking chance on unique media is relatively rare, uh, you know, with the big box, box office stuff. And so that's the other thing we wanted to do. We wanted to give people fuel to write something more interesting and diverse and, and, and maybe play with ideas that they had never considered before. Speaking of which, 
I have a challenge for you Uh-oh. on this because you brought it up in the book. <laughs> you brought it up in the book, and I think you already know what I'm about to talk about. Maybe there's a couple of very controversial. <laughs> very controversial. <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking about the first controversy. Lord of the Rings. Oh yes. Yeah. Versus Star Wars. Oh now. Here, here's and he actually puts it this way. Don't I look know. at me like that. I he know. actually does. I know. And here, here's here's one of the things that you you stated that when it comes to we'll say Lord of the Rings first mm-hmm. one, okay, it's very uh, stagey in terms of the diversity within the uh, within the within the the very homogeneous realms. Yes, thank you, homogeneous. Say that word again because I. Okay. Homogeneous, right? It Homogeneous. Means the there you go. Homo means same. The prefix hetero means different. I was trying to figure out how to say that earlier too when I was reading it out loud. Because um, I was looking, I was like, yeah, he is right. They're like, even though you've got all these different races in here, many of the cultures are based just out of Europe mm-hmm. because that's all that he, that token knew, mm-hmm. you know? So anytime we hear, anything dealing with a dwarf what's the first accent that comes to mind scottish mm-hmm. every time anytime that we think of elves they're very prosper so we think of them as english mm-hmm. london accents almost e- right they exactly exactly what it, it's true though it's absolutely <laughs> no, true. i get, you I get where say. you're coming with that i get where you're coming with that because we you know we're writing um myself writing and, and um riley actually creating a video game of their own. And and when I listen to Riley, Riley is my my 23-year-old in college right now. And Riley has come up with incredible concepts. And I, I listen, I sit there and I listen, and I said, well, where did you get this? But Riley's, uh, Riley is just barely a member of Mensa, could be, and just, just does not want to do it. And they come up with these thought processes that I, I sit here and I go, who created you? You know, yeah. <laughs> like who created you and you're coming up with all this stuff and you're coming up with these cultures and these, these ideas. And I said, where are they coming from here? Or are they, and no mom, I looked it up. Why did you look it up? And this is since they were very little because I was bored mm-hmm. because I was bored. And I see more people doing that these days. And when, when, you know, skimming through your book and reading it, I said, Jesus Christ, I wonder if, if, um, if more people think this way mm-hmm. and there are not a lot of people that think this way. No, and this is, not. it's yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, increasingly, we're being exposed to new ideas and new cultures with social media and and there's critique of our own culture. And and that's a lot of where the division is, is because the the everyday assumptions about how the world works, um, those are just assumptions. They're not, you know, there's a great TED talk by Wade Davis uh, that you can check out that. Uh, it was, it's dreams from forgotten cultures. There's, there's a couple of really good ones, but really what he's just saying in his Ted talks is like, look, these are not, there's not a hierarchy of cultures. There's just different cultural options, different places that require different adaptations or, you know, there's different knowledge. I mean, he, he talks about the Polynesian sailors who were just unbelievable brilliance. Uh, absolutely. These are people who can, without any modern navigation, out navigate GPS systems. They can, they can like, I mean, they, they can know what islands are, you know, hundreds of miles away by looking at sea swells and the refraction of patterns on their boat. I mean, it's just incredible. 
you know, and so he makes he makes the the, the basic comparison that if we took all the genius uh, of what it took to send a man to the moon and applied it just to sailing, that's the Polynesian culture. And so humans are incredibly curious, incredibly genius, uh, you know, across cultures. And it's what we choose to put our efforts in that's different. And yeah. of course, there's environmental pressures that that could that get us to put our our energy in some things versus others. But there's also social pressures, you know. And if you think about, you know, for all of the terrible things going on these days, there is an outburst of creativity unlike we've ever seen before in humanity. And and yeah. that that's that's I mean, we're we also have never. As a species, we're not just talking about one country. We're talking about the whole world is talking about things like bias and considering how to be more paying more attention and being more considerate. And, you know, we we might be living through very difficult times, but we're also in a lot of ways um, doing unique and interesting things that the human species has never done before. So, you know, so there's a lot of a lot of pessimistic attitudes about what's coming with climate change and all this stuff. And yeah, there's a lot of really difficult times ahead. But also, we have a lot of opportunities because we're a globalized community to really bounce ideas off each other if we're just a little bit more open to considering that, you know, maybe my point of view isn't the only way to go. And yeah. that's and, and again, another reason we wrote the book is, can we help people understand cultural systems? Can we help people understand one another a little better so that as not only as they're writing the books, and this is why we say, you know, if you understand cultural systems, then if you understand diversity a little better, then your encounters with people are going to make your life easier because you'll be more patient, more willing to listen, more open. Uh, and that will breed all kinds of new connections. Uh, and that will breed less anger and depression and, and anxiety on your part because you realize, okay, this this guy at work is an asshole. But, uh, okay, I'm understanding the conditions and context of his life. Maybe there's a better way I can approach him or her and then... And then we can actually communicate better. And then that might open the door to things. But you can't do that unless you fundamentally try to understand people and you have the patience to accept, well, maybe I don't know everything. And that's, we like to be right. I mean, I do all the time. I, you know, especially you're in academia, you know, I, I teach at universities. There's a real arrogance problem for us. You know, it's, you spend you all know? years no. developing these, these, in, these intelligent things and this research and, Arrogance is a problem, and it is important to listen to one another. Well, I'm a, I'm going to really work your arrogance right now on this. <laughs> I want to see how far I can go with this. Oh, so boy. The original the question is, obviously, that, well, the statement was that Lord of the Rings, we already see that there is a stagey difference, obviously, with it only being one to two cultures within all those characters that there are. And then when you look at Star Wars, like you said, it's insane how many that there are based on whatever planet that comes up. And then, of course, the idea that no matter how many times we look at Star Wars, there's still multiple, multiple different narratives we can talk about Mm -hmm. because we're now creating another planet that has a different language, has a different culture and stuff like that. So here's my... Here is my challenge to you. So taking that concept with Star Wars, let's go back to Lord of the Rings. And 
since we've already pushed out that, okay, we only have at least two different cultures within that, with through all these cult, these characters, no one talks about the orcs mm-hmm. and all of them that are in the Badlands. Right. Because obviously these are the bad guys, or they're said to be the bad guys by mm-hmm. this high and mighty, powerful, immortal culture when all these other guys are not. So who's who's who? Who's the bad guys here? The ones that are trying to control <laughs> all of the resources or the ones trying to survive? Well, so here's. Here's my here's my challenge for you. I know there's a there's so many things I could just tear this thing apart with, but here's my challenge to you. Because Tolkien did, never gave them a true language, the orcs. I want you to see if you can figure out give me a culture within our own world that would match that of the orcs in terms of environment, mm-hmm. in terms of their culture in terms of their government. They don't. That's the problem. The orcs are entirely unrealistic. They're a homogeneous society, basically just bred for war. They're just monsters. That's that's the problem we have with orcs, actually. Is is and it's this continuing idea, you know, you see and recently, of course, you know, officially DD stepped away from the evil racist trope. Because mm-hmm. and, and you'll see this actually all over white supremacist websites is that Thank they will you. take they will take the orcs and use them as a stand-in for Jews or Muslims or immigrants or anyone who's invading their society, uh, and so the orcs are not a culture, and that's the problem with the orcs is the enemy isn't a culture, the enemy is an inv- is just like this impure force that was created to corrupt the good the good people, right? So. But if you really, if we were to actually create an or like really think about what an orc or culture would be, the orc are an oppressed people. They're essentially oppressed by this super totalitarian dictator with magic abilities and, and really are slaves. They, they are in a really shitty scenario. Uh, and, if, you know, their brutality comes from the fact that they were created for oppression, so through oppression. So but you can't really match the orcs to any one particular real human culture because a, they don't. You don't have enough content to really know, and and B, uh, they're not really meant to be a culture. They're meant to be kind of just this insidious, a polluting force, right? This evil kind of essence that they're that, weapons. Yeah, exactly. So, so they're not, and that's the big problem with Tolkien's world building: is the orcs themselves. And you know, of course, in later fantasy, you see much more complex orcs or complex bad guys or uh but even still there's still this that and you know of course again we're moving away from this with the evil racist tropes uh in things like dungeons and dragons and you know you most more recent fantasy you see so much more nuance right mm-hmm. right everyone thinks they're a good guy and they they probably actually have a legitimate region like um, another, my favorite fantasy, current fantasy series is uh, Brent Weeks' Lightbringer series. I love that series. And he does such a good job. Even when you're like listening to the enemy, you're listening to the guys who are coming in to smash everything. And you're like, you know, they have a point. They, they do. This, this, this theocratic system is extremely oppressive and they're trying to smash it, to smash the theocracy. But of course, the person who comes in to smash the theocracy wants something much worse. So it's like oh, yeah. your critiques are valid, but your desires are, you know, megalomania. So it's, it's, 
you know, and, and that's and that's the real world, though. I mean, look at look at what's going on with Russia right now. Literally, what's happening right now, right? You have a guy who's a who's an egomaniac who believes he has like a right to all of this stuff, uh, you know, and it, it's just. Uh, but, you know, if you look at what the Russian people are experiencing, they're just trying to survive a difficult, cir- different circumstances. And, of course, some people side with them and some people don't, just like in any political system. Right. There's absolutely. And that's one of the things I, I really think is in, is important here with with when you're talking about religion or politics in your fictional worlds is there should always be resistance movement within your within the culture, because there's Ooh, always like people who are pushing back against the dominant society. Always. That's never not not been a thing. Even in small scale indigenous cultures, there are always individuals who question authority, who challenge what the established narratives are. Humans are just always doing that. And so, you know, and we we mentioned the Borg several times in the book because the Borg are. Let's get to that. I was about to get to that. Of uh, of basically assimilate, of of perfect assimilation. Right. And the Mm -hmm. Borg are essentially created to look at what happens when you remove all critical thought and thinking uh, and you just create like a collective. Yes. Authoritarian dictators are powerful. You know, China can build shit like that. Right. But there's a high cost. To what it means to be a civilian uh, in a place that's under authoritarian dictatorship, uh, and a lot of your your ability to access society if you don't have access already is nil. So, and, and so uh, you know this idea that and that that's that'll always be my biggest critique. If you create a culture or a world building system where one group of people is just homogeneous and no one questions anything, that's bad world building, right there. Yeah, absolutely, right? and and that's why. Like in Doctor Who, he has the Cybermen. Like you said, with uh, Star Trek, they have the Borgs. So right. having them as a culture within the world is still good to have because it gives you that opportunity to say, okay, we're going to go against what these people are trying to do. They're trying to take our individuality right. away from us. And that's right, always a good thing to have. Yeah. And of course, like the Borg and the Cybermen and any kind of unthinking collective uh, kind of thing is all just, you know, back to what do you happen? What happens with like, you know, neo with Nazis and the Aryan race and all this idea that the ultimate control and perfection is really where it is. But but it's also important because in some of these critiques of collectivism, we forget the power of how important it can be for communities to work together and how we've hyper, and this is the big problem with Joseph Campbell, for example, the hyper focus on individualism is also very bad, also very toxic, you know, and you see this interplay in Star Trek a lot, right? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, but there's always a but on that, but there are times when that's not true, right? So, so, so you have to, there's a, there needs to be, there has to be a balance and this is a, a good thing to strike with world building too, is, you know, is there a balance between this idea of working together of the wonders of community also with individual choice and agency, there has to be a middle ground. And, and in the United States, we focus far too much on the individual, but in other countries, they far focus far too much on the community and, and they, they leave people behind. So, um, but individualism can leave people behind as well too. So, you know, there's a lot of striking the balance there. So is it Absolutely. like a, a, I'm sorry, Mac, I was just going to say, it's almost like a question of whether or not to assimilate or integrate. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and what is, what does integration look like? And 
Um, you know, uh, you know, of course, that again, the genius of humanity is diversity. So if you suppress, you integrate too much and you suppress all these different creative viewpoints, you lose something very significant. Uh, and that's, you know, a lot of what, a lot of what colonialism, and we talk about that too, the, the, the acculturation process where yep. one powerful society tries to force its beliefs and ways of thinking onto another, and then you lose all this genius. Because every time a culture or a language disappears, you lose essentially what is another li library of Alexandria. You're losing the an entire repository of knowledge. The conquistadors did the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Look at all, look at all the stuff we, we lost in from all those cultures that were there. And here's the other thing. We also, prior to the English even getting here and colonizing, Indians were still doing that to themselves too because this whole, this whole country was full of a variety of different Indian tribes mm -hmm. in the area. Yeah. And there was and the one Aztec empire was not well liked. They were not no. well liked. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, but there was one huge city, and I can't remember what it was called. Maybe you can help Cahokia. me with this. Uh, close to Chicago. The Chicago You're probably area. thinking Cahokia. Cahokia probably. is not that close to Chicago, but it is in, in what is modern-day Missouri. So, okay. That's uh, but they had a huge trade network that ran thousands of miles all across oh North America between, I think, forgive me, because I think the dates are 900 to about 11 or 1200. There, there's, like a huge, yeah. there's a huge drought in the 11th and 12th century that really cripples a lot of the Native American empires that are here on, the, on this continent. Uh, you know, Cahokia was, of course, plugged into, you know, Chaco Canyon and, uh, you know, and all the way down to Central America. So there was a lot of there was a lot of overlapping stuff. And they had it, you know, uh, I mean, Cahokia, if you look this up, if you don't know what Cahokia was, it's this this huge civilization of mound builders, they'd build these earthen mounds and then build cities on top of them. So, yeah. you know, um, and of which course, which was as big as Chicago. Yeah. Which is yeah. Yeah. The they size were, they, of Chicago. They, were they were huge. So, uh, you know, so there was a lot of that here. And then of course, environmental conditions, this, you know, a century long drought pretty much cripples any empire. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it'll probably cripple us in, in the near future. Absolutely. Too. So, I want to ask one more thing before Marcella brings in with uh, her last uh, last questions before we get off of here. Um, I wanted to ask you one simple thing. What is sapiens.org? Oh, sapiens.org. Um, so that's a it's a blog site, but it's run entirely by anthropologists. So it's a really great if you really want to know about anthropology, it's a wonderful, wonderful resource because it's just got hundreds of articles uh, written by anthropologists. So people who know it's not like a Jared Diamond nonsense where this person who's an ornithologist, a, basically a biological scientist who thinks that they know about culture, but actually don't. So uh, but sapiens.org has so many wonderful resources and there's lots of citations to sapiens.org in the book because they just have so many wonderfully easily accessible uh, examples of what anthropology means and what culture is. So if you're looking for story fuel, if you're looking for that stuff, if you're looking for unique ways of approaching the world, sapiens.org has a lot of really good stuff. You know, everything from how, you know, pain and scarification rituals, for example, are actually primary methods of healing and catharsis. So, you know, a lot, a lot of people, the mo one of the most common ways of inducing religious ecstasy is actually pain. 
we love to use pain to trigger different uh, different states of consciousness and stuff. So there's, you know, to, to uh, when was the controlled use of fire? When did that begin? There's a great article right. on that. Or, um, you know, what is, uh, you know, what are different kinship patterns around? What do family structures around the world look like? And and the great thing is Sapiens does all four fields. So you get language articles, culture articles, archaeology articles, um, and uh, biological articles. There's a really good one called Do You See What I See? on how language and perception, I actually assigned this one in my cross-cultural communication course that I teach. Uh, that's all about color perception across cultures. Is that really a universal thing or not? Turns out it's it's a really hotly debated thing on whether it actually is and whether people actually see the colors or not. Now, you know, because uh, real quick, blue, for example, is not present anywhere in ancient Greece, anywhere. There's no reference to blue whatsoever. So did they perceive blue or not? So- Lots of interesting things to consider. Mac, I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I visit that site frequently. And again, I learned that from Riley. It's just one of their favorite places to go just, and just to read, not for any other reason. Um, but Michael, I, first, I, would, I just want to thank you again for being here. This has been so wonderful. Um, but I have two questions for you, and they're very sure. quick questions. The first one, and I'm hoping you get the reference because not everybody does. What is your writing kryptonite? My writing kryptonite. Uh, so what? What's difficult for me? Um, I'm sure this is a lot of writers having the time to write. <laughs> having having yeah. a time and sitting down regularly is is tough. You know, yeah. I you know I've been working on my sixth book for uh, two years now. So it's well my sixth book and or my fifth book in a series and it's sixth book overall. So it's, it's just a matter of and I, I think it's also patience. You have to be patient with your writing. You know, there's a mm -hmm. lot of push these days to get books out as fast as humanly possible. You know, write quick, write often, publish all the time. And again, that's a particular model for business. Some. If, mm -hmm. you're, wanting to, if you're wanting to write something that is lasting and impactful, patience is required. It absolutely is. You're going to have to do many drafts. You're going to have to sit with those characters in that setting for quite a while. You know, Dune. Dune took what a decade oh, to write, that's right. That's right. and it's yeah. the sixty-five million copies. It's the most, the highest-grossing uh, science fiction novel of all time by far. Um, and I think the only person, and in, in, I, I, I might be uh, exaggerating here, but I think the only person who has beat him uh, in terms of sales in speculative fiction is J.K. Rowling, I, I believe. So, um, you know, so, but that masterpiece, which is an absolute work of genius, I know a lot of people don't like it, but really political and world building mm -hmm. and everything, genius work. It took him and it took, and it, and it took him like an average of 10 years for each of those books. It was like wow. some years he put out, you know, in five or six, but most of his books took a very long time. So patience is important when you're writing and, and it, but it's hard to be patient because you want to get the story done, you know? Right. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, th that's actually a wonderful answer. Um, and, and somewhat different, right, Max? Somewhat different. Um, my last question is, is there, um, we always ask if there's a, a favorite quote that you have that inspires you to keep writing, but is there something in general that inspires you to keep writing? If it's a quote, I'm, I'm, I would love to hear it, but anything. It's actually a Frank Herbert quote. Okay. Oh, Frank <laughs> Herbert. Wow. <laughs> so it's in, uh, I think it's a six Dune book, chapter house Dune. Um, let me let me let me just pull it up real quick. It just uh, so I get it exactly right. It's um, all right. Seek freedom and become captive to your desires. 
seek discipline and you will find your liberty. And, and that I actually will write that on the bathroom mirror periodically. And I'm feeling bummed out about, you know, how long something is taking. And it's just, it's just, it's just one step at a time. It's all one foot in front of another with a creative process, uh, with writing a book, with doing anything. And, and so that's, it's just something I think is a little bit every day goes a very long way. It's my own little personal mantra that I say all the time, you know, and it, it rhymes. So it's also very, you know, nice. I always tell my kids, hey, a little bit every day goes a very long day way, especially, you know, my son likes Minecraft too, and it takes him forever to build anything. And I was like, a little bit every day, buddy, you know, so. So the, the, that's the one I, I kind of try to live by that a little bit every day. And that also includes everything from personal growth. You can't change everything all at once to, to diet, to exercise, to everything, right? And, and, and in trying to keep on track with discipline and remembering that freedom only comes after long discipline. Absolutely. You know, Michael, I, I wish we could just stay on here for a lot longer, but I know you've got your, your schedule. You got to do some stuff, but thank you again for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Everybody, please, please go out and get Build Better Worlds, an introduction to anthropology for game designers, fiction writers, and filmmakers. If you are a creative like me and like Marcella and obviously like Michael, it is definitely something you have to have on your shelves. So, Michael, thank you again. Please tell everybody where they can find you if you have any special events, speaking events, or anything like that. Please, yeah, I'll be um, I'll be at the uh, High Plains Society for Applied Anthropology, or I'm sorry, well, that one too, but Society for Applied Anthropology in uh, March. It'll be March 22nd and 26th. Uh, I'll be chairing a panel there on culture and the imagination. Uh, and this is with a bunch of anthropologists. So we'll be talking a lot of theory and stuff. Um, I'll, I, I don't have any, I, I'll be at Starfest uh, in Denver. And, and I think it's May 15th and 16th. I have to double check. But yeah, Starfest Denver. I'll be doing panels and have a table there and, and talking to people. So if you want to find out what's going on, I usually announce it on my website, LeridiansLaboratory.com. Um, and, uh, and I'm also on YouTube. I have a, a show called Anthropology in 10 or Less that I'm always working on episodes on as well. So, And I did a TED Talk last September. You just search Michael Kilman TED Talk. I'm sure it'll pop up. So, My goodness, my goodness, my goodness. <laughs> Michael, thank you again for being on here. We really appreciate that. Uh, we really, really do. So, Marcella, what do you think? Out of yeah. all that information he gave you, do you think you can start writing your book again? Oh, I haven't stopped writing my book, Mac. <laughs> I haven't stopped. Like Michael says, it takes time. There you go. There you go. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for being on here. I've learned a lot. I know I'm going to like bug the heck out of Michael when it comes to any of my, my thoughts. I'm going to probably just send him a bunch of stuff say, does this work? Do you think this will work? Please help me. No, I'm kidding. I, maybe. Anyways, uh, thank you again, Michael, for being on here. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find us at our website, Beyond the Pen. Dot, or beyondthepenpodcast.com you you know everything that we we do you we've got a fan page that you can go on facebook with and join you can find us all over the place just go beyondthepenpodcast.com find us on your favorite podcast player and we've got so many more great authors lined up so until next time folks remember keep writing 
keep inspiring, and keep sharing as you go beyond the pain. Hey folks, that's a wrap for this episode of Beyond the Pen. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to stay connected and up to date with everything Beyond the Pen, follow us on Twitter at Beyond the Pen Pod and Instagram at Beyond the Pen Podcast. For even more content and exclusive access to our guest profiles and more, make sure to visit our website at beyondthepenpodcast.com. Don't forget to join our Facebook fan page to interact with our favorite authors and fellow fans of the show. And if you want to take your Beyond the Pen experience to the next level, check out our selection of video interviews on Traverse TV's video on demand and live stream. You can access these interviews through your Roku, Amazon Fire, Apple TV, Google Play, iTunes, or the Traverse TV app. So until next time, thanks again for tuning in and remember to keep writing inspiring and sharing as you go beyond the pen.